the National Archives podcast series, From Crime to Punishment, Criminal Records of Our Ancestors from the 18th and 19th Centuries, presented by Jeff James. It's a good afternoon, everybody, and a very warm welcome on a dreary afternoon at Kew. As you can see, and as Richard says, my name is Jeff James, and I'm Director of Operations and Services at National Archives. And today's talk is on crime and criminal records in the 18th and 19th centuries. I feel like I should begin by saying I'm not a record specialist. I say that especially because there's a few of them <laughs> in the room here today. Uh, but I am someone who has an interest in crime as a consequence of completing an MA in history. And my dissertation focused on 50 convicted felons interred on prison hulks at the turn of the 19th century who refused pardons uh, to serve in the army during the Napoleonic War. My research therefore allowed me to follow the records of these convicts as they journeyed through the criminal justice system. And it's my aim today to talk, to you, to talk you through this system and the records created at the various decision points, but also to highlight the importance and the impact of pardoning on the eventual outcomes of those convicted. By using case studies, I hope to impress you, no less, uh, with the value of the pardoning archive in bringing to life the stories of thousands of convicted felons who, despite being condemned to the hangman's noose, more often than not benefited from mercy and escaped death. If you want to take one thing away today for your research, it's to be sceptical of the recorded sentencing and to pursue your ancestor through all possible outcomes until you're confident that you know what eventually became of them. Whether real or perceived, the 18th century was a period characterised by an increasing fear over crime, typified here by the comments by Fielding, the novelist, magistrate and founder of what is acknowledged to be London's first professional police force, the Bow Street Runners, and the politician Walpole. By the way, the, the town that um, Fielding refers to is, of course, London. But who were these housebreakers, these highwaymen, these footpads and banditti? And what became of those criminals who fell foul of the criminal justice system? <laughs> criminals who placed themselves at the mercy of the monarch and a system founded on clemency. Criminals like William Barnett, found guilty of stealing goods and monies from the dwelling house of George Russell in Bath in October 1806, and initially sentenced to be hanged at Taunton in Somerset the following April. Or the juvenile James Butler, only 15 years old when he was convicted of theft at the Old Bailey. And the flamboyantly named Jean-Louis Baptiste Barrier, a 33-year-old valet, convicted also at the Old Bailey on the same day as James Butler of theft and initially sentenced to seven years transportation. Using Barnett, Butler and Barrier as illustrations, we find that more often than not, the actual outcome rarely reflects the sentence initially imposed in a criminal justice system whose foundations were based on mercy. So what will I cover today? Well, we'll go through a little bit of the historical context, talk about the criminal justice system in England and Wales in the 18th and 19th century, the places of trial and the possible outcomes, and throughout that, the records which are created and whether or not you can access them here or elsewhere. This was, above all, a period of massive change and conflicting social economic and political drivers. On the one hand, improvements in public health and sanitation, better diets, more employment opportunities, higher wages, cleaner water and improved medical care 
had resulted in improved mortality rates, dropping from 40 per thousand in 1700 to only 26 per thousand by 1811. This in turn gave rise to a massively increasing population, particularly in urban conurbations such as London, whose population almost doubled in a century from 575,000 in 1700 to 900,000 by the time of the 1801 census. At the same time, Britain, and especially London, was emerging as a major international and national hub for trade, leading to improvements in transportation and generating a new and huge market economy, arguably the beginning of the first real consumer society in England. However, throughout the period, Britain was variably at war across several continents, with America and then France, leading to both prosperity in terms of jobs and increased taxes. After all, wars are very expensive. The increasing population and demands of waging war were offset by a period of poor harvests, increasing food prices and food shortages leading to a prolonged period of civil unrest, dominated in the provinces by food riots and in London by general civil and political unrest. Rioting was commonplace and was considered to be a basic right. According to Home Office records and HO42 and contemporary newspaper accounts, there were over 600 riots between 1790 and 1810, of which 242 were related to food. By the turn of the 19th century, the old parish-based relief system was perceived to be both out of date and expensive, having been in place since the reign of Elizabeth I. The protracted Napoleonic War had led to food shortages and higher taxation, and there was general dissatisfaction with the way that relief was administered to the poor. In 1834, the Poor Law Amendment Act was passed and the new Poor Law was introduced. This increasing awareness of the cost of supporting the poor was linked to an emerging understanding of how poverty was linked to crime. Contemporary social commentators such as Fielding and the politician Walpole, together with the founder of the Thames River Police, Patrick Colhoun, pressed for more centralised control and a general move away from parish-based relief and service provision. And above all, these commentators capitalised on the public perception of increased depravity, lowering moral standards, which in turn was leading to a fear of a crime wave. These same social commentators pressed for a move away from Paris watch systems to a centralised control of law and order, culminating, as Chris Heather pointed out last week, in the establishment of the Metropolitan Police by the then Home Secretary Robert Peel in 1829. Analysis of Old Bailey records does indeed demonstrate an increase in crime, especially violent crime, but this does have to be taken against a massive, the backdrop of a massive increase in both population and goods, leading to an increase in opportunity and motive. Whether real or imagined though, then as now, public fear was to be a key factor in the political and legal systems. So, clearly many crimes would have been committed and gone undetected. In some cases, those crimes that did not involve a victim, such as drunkenness, prostitution and gambling, may have been dealt with locally by the parish constable or policeman, depending on the location and the period. The proverbial clip round the ear. Similarly, the magistrate may have decided that the crime did not warrant trial at petty or quarter sessions. In these cases, it is most likely that, record, that no records survive, other than notebooks which might possibly be retained at county record offices. 
Perhaps the most unusual feature, though, of the criminal justice system at this time was the fact that it was left to the victim to bring a prosecution. Many offenders escape punishment owing simply to the fact that the victim was not prepared to follow through with the prosecution. Victims were very much in control. As the historian Peter King remarked, it was the victim who provided the momentum, the driving force that moved a dispute towards a trial. If the victim refused to react, the judicial system remained inert and ineffective. In many cases, then, the victim would reach an informal settlement or sanction, or simply fail to turn up at court. In other cases, prosecutions fail because of the expense or the time involved, the risk of a public outcry, or the severity of sentencing. By 1820, there were over 200 capital crimes on the statute book, rising from around 50 in the 1680s. 200 crimes for which the punishment was death. It was more likely than not, if you committed a crime, were brought to trial and found guilty, that you would be sentenced to death for that crime, no matter how petty by today's standards. In reality, though, it would have proved both practically and morally impossible to carry out all those death sentences. And more often than not, the convicted cr criminal was shown mercy. The justice system centred on the relationship between the citizen, the judiciary and the crown. And effectively, criminal prosecutions were, were pursued on behalf of the monarch. Therefore, the effect was effectively against the king. It was the gift of the monarch through his representatives to grant clemency. Likewise, it was every free man's right to be shown for and ask for mercy. And it's this principle and practice which is incredibly important. As we'll see later, the eventual outcome is very rarely that which is recorded at sentencing. So, crimes which were committed, detected and prosecuted would progress to some form of trial and ultimately a record. From the beginning of the 18th century, local magistrates began to summarily consider the least serious cases, including many which involved juvenile offenders, either by sitting alone in private or as a pair at a petty session. In some part, this was a reaction to the increasing caseload at quarter sessions. Although less formal than the quarter sessions, the petty sessions did become increasingly formal over the period, moving from private accommodation inns and such like, to public buildings, and from unpaid and wealthy gentlemen of social standing to stipendiary magistrates, and from 1835, qualified barristers. Records are scant, but again, what do remain will be held at county record offices, and as such are outside the scope of this talk. As the name suggests, the courts of quarter sessions were convened four times per year, at Epiphany, Easter, Midsummer, and Michaelmas in all counties of England and Wales. Usually each session would be held in a different town of the county and the aim was to conclude business within the day, although by the 19th century it wasn't untypical for a second adjourned session to be convened. Quarter sessions dealt with both criminal and civil matters, with more serious crimes often being referred to the assizes. Verdicts were determined by juries, although the justices decided on the sentence. Again, sporadic records do exist, but are not held at the National Archives and are retained locally at county record offices. They extend to depositions, witness statements, indictments, the name, address and offence details, and order in minute books. 
Again, these are outside the scope of the talk today. What we are going to concentrate on is Assizes and the Old Bailey. The most serious offences were tried before juries and pairs of judges at one of two Assize courts, Lent and Summer, in most counties of England and Wales, with the exception of Middlesex and in Cheshire, Durham and Lancashire. The Assize courts were overseen by experienced and qualified judges, typically with two decades experience at the bar. Records are held at the National Archives and are catalogued under the department code ASI, A-S-S-I, and are arranged by one of the six relevant circuits. David Hawking's book, which I've uh, shown there, which is available through our library, reference 364HAW, details the, uh, the circuits and their relevant counties in Appendix 4 for those who are interested. The counties of Cheshire, Durham and Lancashire were known as Palatinate counties and their records are recorded separately in their own departments, CHES, Chesh, Durham, D-U-R-H and PL for Lancaster. The equivalent of the Assizes for London and Middlesex was the Old Bailey, which met eight times per year normally under the jurisdiction of the Recorder of London, who was the nearest thing that there was at the time to a specialist criminal judge. Most others at that time tend to be schooled in civil law. Original records are held at the National Archives, for example in PCOM 1, but by far the easiest way to search records from the Old Bailey proceedings is to use the free online resource Old Bailey Online. So, the logical place for most people to begin with is to start by reviewing the relevant trial proceedings and associated documents. If you're fortunate enough to know where your felon was tried, then the journey begins at the relevant trial record. For those less fortunate, the journey will most probably begin with HO26 and HO27. These criminal registers contain an alphabetical, alphabetical listing by county in England and Wales of all persons charged with indictable offences, showing the results of the trials, the sentences in case of conviction, and the dates of execution and persons sentenced to death. HO 26 covers Middlesex from 1791 to 1849 only, while HO 27 covers all of England and Wales from 1805 to 1892 including Middlesex from 1850 onwards. Both registers, as you can see, have been digitised and put online via ancestry.co.uk. So I don't know if you can see that on the screen, but um, looking at the first of our case studies, William Barnett, you can see there that I've entered the search details onto uh, the criminal registers. So we're looking at William Barnett, Somerset, 1807. And what you get back is a colour, digitised colour image of the Somersetshire, um, them not me, criminal register for 1807. This is TNA catalogue reference HO27-3, folio 196. You won't be able to see that, I doubt, on the screen, but if we expand it, you can just about make out the name, which in this case is the abbreviated William Barnett. When tried, which was the 1807 lent assizes. The crime, I don't know if you can read that, but it's larceny from a dwelling house. And the sentence, which is ditto, but if you look to the top it says death. The absence of information in the how disposed column, which is the far right hand column, 
is an easily missed hint that William Barnett may not have met the hangman's noose after all. So armed with the date and place of trial, the researcher can then proceed to the relevant Assize or Old Bailey records. Just to finish on this one, you can see as well at the bottom of the screen, um, when you look at this on answers, you can look at the expanded view of the document, but you can also see there's some abbreviated informa information at the bottom, which reflects what you can read on the, uh, the digital image itself. So, Assize records. Well, this is definitely one of those good news, bad news stories. The Assize records vary considerably in content, scope and condition, varying from the sublime, uh, like ASI 31 slash 20, which covers the home counties. This one's legible, paginated and alph alphabetically name indexed. To the ridiculous, ASI 4110, which covers Yorkshire, is by contrast illegible, unpaginated and not indexed. In some part, this may, due, may be due to the nature of their production, with some written up at the time, like rough notes, and others written up later, and therefore in the main neater and better organised. Many of the assize records are unavailable before a given date. For example, Warwick records, like many of the Midland circuit records, only begin in 1818, whilst others have sizeable gaps. So, for example, Winchester has nothing between 1798 and 1807. And some are in such poor condition they have to be seen under supervision. Certainly, you can be prepared to get dirty hands if you're going to look at them. Assize records can extend to a combination of the following set of common records, jail or minute books, indictments and depositions and examinations. The best place to begin a search in the Assize records is probably with the Crown Minute Jail and Agenda books. They list the accused and summarise, cases heard, and summarise the cases heard or about to be heard, often noting the plea, the verdict and the sentence, very much like the minutes of a meeting might do. The indictments are a formal statement of the charge against the accused and are usually annotated with plea, verdict and sentence and filed in large unwieldy bundles together with other miscellaneous records such as jury panels, coroner's inquest commissions and pre presentments of non-criminal offences. The indictments on here on the left and the minute books in the middle. And the depositions uh, and examinations Witness statements and case papers, basically, often contain lots of personal details, and there's quite a few from the 19th century which have survived, but usually only for more serious crimes. In many cases, the indictments and the depositions are absent, leaving only the jail or the minute books. Unfortunately, ASI records are not name searchable, so instead the researcher must use the information gleamed from HO 26 and 27 to locate the relevant, me, relevant records for their county. So in the case of William Barnett, the easiest route is to find the records for Somerset in 1807. There are three routes into the Assize records, browsing the catalogue, searching the catalogue, or consulting the relevant research guide. And often the latter is the easiest route in, as it includes an alphabetical listing of counties with their associated record. So this is a, a screen snapshot of the relevant research guide. And you can see there I've highlighted Somerset. The first column is the jail books. The second, which I've highlighted in the red box, are the indictments. And then it goes on to depositions and other 
records of interest and you can see the indictment for Somerset is, a, is ASI 25. You can, as I said, search the catalogue but with variable results. Often a basic knowledge of geography is important depending on the level of the description. Using the catalogue requires an appreciation that Somerset is likely to be included in the western counties and some element of potluck in applying a search term. So in this instance, the search term SOM returns a small number of records, one of which is the indictment for the length of sizes in 1807. If you use Somerset, you may get pages and pages of information, and if you use a wild card, some asterisks, you'll get something in between. So, ASI 25-5-8 is the indictment for William Barnett. And as you see, if you look at that, you can see the crimes with which he was committed, including the theft of silverware, clothing and money from the dwelling house of one George Russell, although he wasn't found guilty of breaking and entering. As I said earlier, technically, crimes were against the king, and this is clearly illustrated at the end of the indictment, where it states that his crime was against the peace of our said lord, the king, his crown and dignity. It was therefore the prerogative of the king via his agents to grant mercy. Included within the ASCII 25 bundle is a summary paper, appearing to show those that the judge intended to reprieve, including Barnet. This clearly shows that his initial sentence to death, recorded at HO 27, was eventually reprieved to seven years' transportation to New South Wales, confirming our earlier suspicions. Also of particular note is the value, 40 shillings, the level at which the theft becomes a capital crime. As you'll see, if I expand the left-hand side of this summary paper, the reason for the reprieve is not included. And that, in my experience, is quite typical. It quite often just says reprieve and doesn't tell you why. I don't know if you can read that. It says, to be hanged, reprieved, to be transported to the coast of New South Wales, or some one or other of the islands adjacent for and during the term of seven years, 24th of April, 1807. In cases where the assize records are not overly instructive, it can be worth checking the exchequer records in E389. These are sheriff's assize vouchers relating to payments for hanging, whipping, the pillory and other punishments. In the case of Barnet, we see that no further amplification beyond retrieve is forthcoming. So again, William Barnet stealing goods and monies above the value of 40 shillings in a dwelling house. Let him be hanged by the neck until he be dead. Reprieved, thankfully for him. By contrast, the process of finding trial records using Old Bailey Online is far simpler. The search function, as you can see, enables the researcher to search by name, by offence, by verdict and punishment over a specified time period. And as ever, the search function can be a little bit fussy. So if you don't get what you want, try different variants and different fields if you're not initially successful. Results are presented as trial transcripts. You can see there the summary there for James Butler, age 15, defendant in the trial of William Marsden. 
And linked to that, you also have a, um, a thumbnail to the original trial transcript itself. As with William Barnett, Mercy was recommended on account of Butler's youth. Although the more observant amongst you will note that this was at the bequest of the jury. And careful examination of the trial transcript demonstrates that at this stage, this is a recommendation. It doesn't actually confirm that a reprieve was actually granted. And as I say, if you click on the thumbnail, you're taken to digital images of the actual trial transcripts themselves, which just repeat what's in the... Uh, in the Old Bailey online web pages, but you can see at the bottom there the prisoners were recommended to mercy by the jury on account of their youth. As I said earlier in the talk, mercy was central to the criminal justice system during this period, and the vast majority of convicted felons would be extended mercy, and by the turn of the 19th century, as many as 90% of those convicted of a capital crime would escape the noose. The pardoning archive therefore represents a hidden gold mine where thousands of lost criminals can be found. That said, the assize judges and the Old Bailey recorder would often exercise discretion in slightly different ways. In many cases, as with James Butler and William Barnett, the trial judge would consider cases worthy of clemency as part of the wrapping up process at the end of the assize before moving on to the next town. Or in the case of the Old Bailey, before the commencement of the next session. The circuit or Old Bailey judge would reconsider the cases heard and sentences passed as part of pardon lists, often referred to as memorials, certificates or circuit letters, making recommendations to the Secretary of State. These good-as-done recommendations would then be recorded at a later date as annotations in the jail books or trial transcripts with the amended sentence. Although, as I said earlier, often no reason is given for the leniency. Those who couldn't persuade the judge during the trial or during the post-sentencing wrap-up had a second bite at the apple through the petitioning system. Options for mercy fall into four broad categories. So there are full pardons, total absolution, conditional pardons, substituting one sentence for another lesser punishment, Remissions, cancellation of part of a sentence, and respites, stays of execution pending review. Convicted criminals or their friends and family could petition the king via the Home Secretary for clemency. These petitions were invariably passed back to the original trial judge for consideration, who would compile a report to the Home Office stating whether he was in favour of mercy, against or ambivalent. From 1784 to 1830, these reports, together with the petitions themselves, are captured in HO 47, Judges' Reports on Criminals. Frequently, felons would rely on those in a position of responsibility to petition on their behalf, gentry and clergy, for example, and or on sheer force of numbers. People like Samuel Collier, convicted of setting fire to a Yorkshire cotton mill, you can see here the catalogue entry for HO 47, 3416. The grounds for clemency, I don't know if you can read the highlighted bit, but he's pretty much covered all bases, to be honest. The grounds for clemency include good character, first offence, was a widower with two young children, 
is innocent of the crime, which is always helpful. <laughs> Again, that the jury is unwilling to find him guilty as to the indictment, probably cognizant of the fact that it means death. He has behaved well while in prison, and he's had no malicious intent, and helpfully the main witness is a bit dodgy. I, think, I don't know if you can see at the top there, 260 people petitioned on behalf of Collier. And if you look at the original records to HO47, <laughs> folio 139, that's about an A3 piece of paper that's actually got all 260 signatures on it. Very well conserved, by the way. I've got to say our collection care department have done an excellent job. And um, when you look at these original records, they're very easy to use and very well prepared. And um, that level of description that you saw on the previous slide, I don't know whether I can go back, is a consequence of all of the work of our volunteers in providing catalogue descriptions for HO47 and for other Home Office records that we'll be looking at in a second. Um, I was quite impressed by this until Paul told me that the record is uh, 1,198 petitioners, or at least that's the, the record of the one we found. Uh, somebody called Henry Young, who was convicted of shooting with intent to murder. Um, quite how he got 1,200 people to say he was uh, innocent, I don't know. Collier's case isn't untypical, though. Having had his initial sentence of death respited, he was afforded no further mercy at this stage. However, it's most probable that his sentence was reprieved to transportation, given the reference at the end to the Hulks. I don't know if you can read that, but it says, recommendation, no mercy. However, there is a note that the prisoner is to be confined on board the Hulks and his case reviewed after one or two years. If the review is favourable, he's to receive a pardon. So, lucky chap. Original petitions from 1819 to 1858 can also be found in HO17 and HO18. An A, to Z, an A to Z index for these two series is in the original HO19 registers and includes name, place of sentencing sometimes, HO17-18 reference and outcome. As I said before, HO17 is one of those benefiting from the work of our volunteers and is, the, is in the process of being catalogued under supervision by the Modern Records team. And it is, in part, name searchable. For the most part, however, it does rely on a somewhat complicated alphanumeric system in HO19 to get to the relevant petition in HO17 and 18. And as you can see, the petitions are loosely bundled and tied together. And again, filthy. Where a full pardon or a conditional pardon, a respite or a remission is shown, a corresponding entry is also made in the criminal entry books in HO13. The HO13 ledgers are name-rich and alphabetically listed under the four possible outcomes. These ledgers record the offer of a pardon, whether conditional or not, and in the case of the latter, detail the conditions that apply. So this is an image of the index to HO13 slash 18. And you can see there that it's alphabetically listed in this section under pardons conditional. And at the bottom there is the second of our uh, case studies, James Butler, who you can see was convicted at the Old Bailey. And it's got a reference to folio 131. If you then go into HO13 slash 18 to folio 131, you can see Butler there recorded with a number of other people. 
This entry, if you were to scroll down the page, goes on to say that Butler's pardon is on the condition that he's transported to the coast of New South Wales for and during the term of his natural life. So better than death, I guess, but still pretty harsh for a 15-year-old. Traditionally, pardons were conditional, and often, especially during times of war, they were on condition of joining His Majesty's service abroad, predominantly in the army, but also in the Marines and the Navy, although it might be worth noting that the Navy was very reluctant to take thieves, and the vast majority of people were convicted of theft. Funnily enough, the idea of fighting Napoleon didn't appeal to everyone, and there is some limited evidence of felons refusing pardons, including the case of 50 <coughs> convicted felons on board hulks in HO 1318, one of which was our very own James Butler, offered a pardon to serve in the army abroad at the tender age of 15. Butler declined this offer in favour of his eventual outcome. As stated earlier, the vast majority of convicted felons did not meet the hangman's noose, and the researcher should be very wary of assuming that a sentence recorded in the assize jail books or the Old Bailey transcripts was the actual eventual outcome. Until the 19th century, prisons were administered locally and were not the property or the responsibility of central government. They were used for the correction of vagrants and those convicted of lesser offences for coercion of debtors and for the custody of those waiting for trial or the execution of a sentence, the latter the most typical. During the 18th and the first half of the 19th century, most convicted felons who were not executed were transported to the colonies, and the establishment of the hulks, floating prisons moored in the Thames at Plymouth and Portsmouth and elsewhere, in the late 18th century to house convicts assembled for transportation marked the first involvement of central government in the ownership and administration of the process. As the 19th century advanced, the practice of transportation gradually declined and the government became closely involved in the setting up and administration of Millbank in 1816, Parkhurst in 1838, Pentonville in 1842 and Portland in 1848. The combined effects of the bloody code and the war in America created a crisis point in the late 18th century and a new act of parliament was introduced in 1776 sanctioning the use of the hulks as a temporary expedient to the problem of overflowing jails and the absence of a suitable place to dispose of them. The first civilian prison hulk, a 260-ton ex-convict transport ship, the Judicia, was commissioned in 1777, and at least another 43 were brought into service thereafter until 1850, serving as a temporary expedient until 1865. With the exception of the Dunkirk, women were not interred on the hulks. By contrast, boys were and they were regularly detained with adults until the Bellerophon, and you had to struggle with that one, and the Uralists were commissioned exclusively for children. Nevertheless, many convicted felons would end up on the hulks awaiting transportation to New South Wales. And my own analysis of 500 felons on board the Retribution and Prudentia hulks between 1803 and 1807 shows that the vast majority were young. The, earliest, the youngest I found went back to 14 years old although um, some of the authors who've written on this talk about children as young as seven and eight. The majority were convicted of uh, theft-related crime, although the Hulk registers aren't always helpful and quite often just say respited rather than telling you what crime was. 
the majority of them were, trans were sentenced to seven years transportation. It was typically seven years, 14 years, or life, and 73% got seven years. And quite often it would take a while for them to arrive at the hulks, and then they would spend quite a lot of time on the hulks. And a lot of them were either pardoned or discharged, having served out their sentence. So sentence to seven years transportation. By the time they've gone from the prison to the Hulk, they might have spent four years of that. It was considered sufficient and they were discharged. In my analysis, only 14% were actually transported. So uh, probably a lot lower than you might have thought. Just out of interest, 3% escaped. These felons are recorded in the Hulk registers in 16 volumes of HO9. And this is available on open access on microfilm at the National Archives. Although name-rich, the registers are poorly described on the catalogue. And if you don't know the name of the Hulk on which your ancestor served, it will be necessary to browse through the entries for each individual Hulk. And some of them have quite literally thousands of people in them. Those who do find their criminal are rewarded by further details of their ancestor and by being one step closer to their eventual fate. Convicts are allocated a number on arrival, and the contents typically include personal details, such as name and age, where known or given, crime details, so the type of crime, when and where they were sentenced, and what the length of the sentence was, and administration details, so when they were received on board, from where, and when and where they were disposed, including, by the way, not infrequently to other hulks. So you may have to trace people around as you, as you follow them from one place to another. Those who survived the arduous conditions on the hulks and were not pardoned or discharged were, like Butler, eventually transported. It is possible to trace such felons from the hulk registers as one of the, record, uh, one of the columns is the recorded outcome. We can therefore see the next stage in James Butler's journey. Having been received on board the Hulk captivity, he was eventually discharged for transportation on board the transport ship Admiral Gambier, some 18 months after his original sentencing. You can, I don't know if you can see, but James Butler there is recorded as 1483, 15 years old, sentenced in January in 1807 at Middlesex. And on the right-hand side, sent on board the Admiral Gambier. It says New South Wales life, NSW life. The other one it quite often says is BS, beyond the seas. Um, so you see these different codes. You can see somebody just above them there, beyond the seas, seven years. My favourite quote. A summer's excursion, an easy migration to a happier and better climate. It sounds like a travel brochure, doesn't it? I doubt that any of the 136,000 male convicts and 25,000 female convicts that were transported to Australia between 1788 and 1853 would agree with Lord Ellenborough's cheerful description. The journey was 16,000 miles and took around six months, and apart from the doomed second fleet, survival rates were actually better than you might think. Take, for, for instance, the Admiral Gambier, on which James Butler travelled. Built at Newcastle in 1808 and weighing 501 tonnes, she made two journeys, one in 1808 and the second in 1811. The first trip set sail from Portsmouth on the 2nd of July 1808 and took 171 days via Rio and Cape Town, arriving at Sydney on the 20th of December 1808. Bateson's The Convict Ships, which is in the TNA Library collection, lists details of all convict transport trips, including dates, 
numbers embarked and disembarked, and details of the transports themselves. Microfilm records in the transport registers at Q in HO11 allow the researcher to continue to trace their ancestor from trial to hulk to eventual transportation. And again, we can see here the Admiral Gambier, which refers to folios 399 to 403. And you can see James Butler there at the bottom, again, sentenced on the 14th of Jan 1807, transportation for life. For those who don't know the name of the transport ship, the State Library of Queensland has transcribed the transport registers in HO11 and provides an online search facility via our catalogue. So if you go to HO11, you'll see a link there to the State Library of Queensland. Again, uh, at the bottom there, you can see, put in the search term, James Butler. And on page two, we find him amongst 278 convicts on board the Gambier and the Aeolus transported in July 1808, arriving at Sydney in December of the same year. We can't be certain that Butler arrived safely at New South Wales, but Bateson confirms that of the 200 prisoners on the Gambier who embarked at Portsmouth, 197 disembarked at Sydney. Those wishing to pursue their convict in the Southern Hemisphere are best placed referring to ancestry.com.au where they can consult New South Wales censors and tickets of leave records. So, thank you for bearing with me. We can't finish without catching up with the last of our case studies, that of the flamboyant Frenchman Jean-Louis Baptiste Barrier. The 33-year-old valet was tried at the Old Bailey on two counts of theft. Acquitted on one count, he was sentenced to seven years' transportation on the 14th of Jan 1807 for the other. He was one of the 50 Hulk convicts who refused, to, who refused an offer of a pardon on condition of serving in the army abroad and was subsequently free pardoned and released on the 3rd of February 1808 whilst interred on the captivity Hulk. Obviously didn't work because an anglicised John Baptiste is sentenced to six months for stealing in 1817, age 42, and again for three months for stealing in 1836, age 60. Of course, it's not possible to say with absolute certainty that Jean-Louis Baptiste Barrier and John Baptiste is the same person, but it's a reasonable supposition given the unusual name, the nature of the crimes and the corresponding ages at conviction. Certainly, of the three case studies, Jean-Louis fared better than his fellow convicts Butler and Barnett, who were retrospectively sentenced to life and seven years' transportation. What is clear is that, to a lesser or a greater extent, all benefited, like thousands of others, from the prerogative of mercy, and none went to the gallows, as the initial sentence might have suggested. Finally, let me, let me finish by acknowledging the support and guidance of the Modern Records team, both past and present, especially Paul Carter and Anne Morton, both of whom are here today. I wrote that hoping you would be both here today, so that's quite good. Thanks ever so much to everybody. Thank you. This event was recorded live on the 10th of February, 2011, at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.